0: Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and I'm here with my co-host, Karen Henson. What's up, Karen?
1: Hey, everyone. How's it going?
0: Today, we're going to start a two-part series on apologetics with Sean McDowell. We hope you enjoy our conversation. We're here with Sean McDowell, who is a Christian apologist that lives in sunny Southern California and uh, teaches at Biola University. So, Sean, welcome, man.
2: Hey, thanks for having me on. This is a treat.
0: Absolutely. Hey, whenever somebody gets into an apologetics conversation, sometimes you have to clarify exactly what that is. So why don't you give us just a real basic definition for what is Christian apologetics?
2: Well, I'm glad you asked because I teach in an apologetics master's program at Talbot Theological Seminary, which is a part of Biola University. And we had a, a lady call up a number of years ago and just say, "Why is Biola having classes on apologizing <laughs> for the faith?"
1: <laughs> and
2: and <laughs> we do teach people to apologize, but not in the sense that she was taking it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, apologetics comes from the term apologia, which actually in First Peter three fifteen says, "Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart." Always be ready with an answer, reason for the hope within, and give it with gentleness or respect. Mm-hmm. Well, the word answer translated reason in Greek is apologia, and it almost has a legal sense of making a case for something, defending, showing why it's true and reasonable. Yeah. And so apologetics is simply a branch of theology that's not just for pastors or Bible teachers. It's actually all Christians are called to be ready with a reason why we think the Bible is true, Jesus is God, uh, the question of evolution, like these tough questions, apologetics is just being ready with an answer.
0: Exactly. And I think when you start to study uh, Christian history as well, I mean, you have in the early church, you kind of have the, the primitive church, you have the apostolic fathers. And then there's this whole group of people who in the Roman world, obviously were being persecuted and were being critiqued for their belief system. And so these early guys were giving a defense for what Christianity was because there was a lot of muddled information about, hey, what is this new thing that's come out of Judaism? And that group of guys were called apologists because they gave a defense. This is a whole part of the early church's history.
2: That's true. I would say it goes even earlier than that. Mm. I think Jesus was an apologist. Read John 5 through 8. He appeals to the testimony of scripture, the story of Moses fulfilled prophecy. Paul reasoned on a- in Acts chapter 17. Mm-hmm. So apologetics goes back even arguably to the Old Testament, but has been a staple of the church since the time of Jesus. And like you said, some of the first church fathers were called the apologists because they made a case for the Christian faith.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of times when people hear the word apologetic or giving a defense. A lot of times in our uh, cultural context, people can equate that with being argumentative or to argue something um, to try to like win a fight. And I would just say in my own experience, I mean, it's only mine, but in my experience as an apologist at a church where I consistently interact with skeptics who have questions about Christianity, I tell people all the time, I'm like, I don't defend Christianity for people as much as I clarify it because there's so many ideas around Christianity that are just not even Christian. So there there are multiple conversations that I'm in with people where at the end of them giving their critique of Christianity I'm just like, "Yeah, like 90% of what you just said is not even true." <laughs> you know, so let me let me like clarify this for you so that you can believe. And so there while apologetics can take on many different forms, I think a lot of our cultural climate today is around just clarifying bad, muddled, confused ideas. How have you seen that play out in your ministry?
2: Oh, I definitely see that playing out. I mean, apologetics is not, we're not supposed to be argumentative, but we are supposed to make arguments. Mm. So we are supposed to argue with people, not in the sense of we think of being argumentative and just being uncharitable but we're supposed to make our case, mm-hmm. be prepared with an answer, advance what we think is true as why, and of course as 1 Peter 3:15 says, do it charitably and graciously. But I look at apologetics as not like trying to force somebody intellectually to believe. Of course you can't do that. Any more than you could, you know, love somebody to force to believe. It's mm-hmm. really just removing roadblocks for people mm-hmm. on the path to salvation. It's a ministry of helping Christians Find answers for the tough questions when they doubt or talk with their neighbors who are uh, non-believers or just removing barriers for non-believers who are open to considering the claims of Christ. That's really what it is.
1: Totally, That's so helpful because I think when people hear the phrase, even apologetic conversation, they think two things. Either that's terrifying. I don't want to do that (laughs) because I don't know. Or they think, all right, let's put on the boxing gloves and let's step into the ring and let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. But the reality is those conversations are not grounded in a a self-confidence, which is what being argumentative would be. Like, hey, I'm confident in what I'm saying about this versus like, hey, I'm confident in what the Lord has done and that his word is true. uh, And that's why I can step into these conversations. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of times I think people in conversations like that are trying to manage the other person's response Uh, you know so it's like hey i'm i need to say this in in a way where i feel like i'm i'm responsible for your emotions right now and i and i think a lot of times that's really counterproductive because it's like hey while i need to be sensitive to the fact of where you are i'm still called to present the truth in love and do so gracefully but to still put the information out there to be like, hey, you, you need to wrestle with this. I mean, I, one of the things that's been super helpful for me is um, a mutual friend of ours, Sean, Greg Kokel, has this principle of this, this placing a stone in somebody's shoe where you present evidence in such a way that that people walk away from the conversation and their head is cocked to the side a little bit and they're just kind of like, huh, I need to think about that some more. In that kind of engagement where it's a conversation and not a boxing match.
2: I think that's so true. And I I, I love what you said a minute ago about people don't have the confidence to engage in these conversations. One of my favorite things to do at churches, conferences, schools, is I put glasses on and I role play an atheist. I call it my atheist encounter. Mm. And then I invite questions from a primarily Christian audience. And I answer as an educated atheist might. And 20, 25 minutes into it, people get testy. They get a little (laughs) angry. mad. (laughs) I'm not kidding. People get hostile and defensive. Mm. And when I step out of character, one of the first questions I ask is, how did you treat me? And you should see people's eyes. Mm. People have a sense of, oh my goodness, you got me. And then I make the point, I say, you know, if we really don't know what we believe and why, and someone presses us, it's human nature to get defensive. It's human nature to get angry. So if we want to counter this and be able to have thoughtful conversations with people, we need to know what we believe which gives us the confidence that there is an answer, even if we don't know it at the present yeah. right, right. and we can thoughtfully have conversations with people. That's the power of apologetics. That's good. That's good.
0: Well, Sean, your dad, Josh, who's, who's also an apologist back in the day, wrote a book called evidence that demands a verdict. Um, what, what year was that published again?
2: Oh gosh. I, I think it was 1972 originally.
0: Yeah. Crazy. So, I mean, I was a twinkle in my father's eye <laughs> um, ah. at that time. But uh, your dad wrote that book um, in a very different cultural context than the one that we live in today. And I remember growing up as a boy, I mean, my dad had a bookshelf in his bedroom and I remember seeing that book on his bookshelf and picking it up and and flipping through it and being like, wow, this is amazing. Like I like I, I didn't even know that this stuff existed And so that really was a unique contribution by your father in the 70s to give people the means to be able to think critically about some of the major critiques of Christianity. And so uh, talk to us about what drove your dad to do that and, and talk to us about the reception that that book had in the 70s. What situation was he in that he was addressing?
2: Well, this is a great question. My dad was really on a personal quest for truth that motivated this book. He grew up with an alcoholic father. His sister committed suicide. My dad was sexually abused seven years by someone who lived on their farm Mm. just as a child, about six to 13 years old, really painful childhood growing up. And he was kind of in college making a lot of money, doing well in sports, being in... ASB, kind of presidential student leadership, but just kind of had a sense of loneliness about him and met a group of people that were different the way they lived their lives. And he befriended him and asked him, and this girl said, Jesus changed my life. And my dad thought that was a joke. Mm -hmm. And they challenged him, and this is in the 50s, to go disprove three things, the reliability scriptures, resurrection, and the deity of Christ. So my father, even though he was in his 20s, had a really successful painting business and had enough money as a college student, pre-law, to go travel overseas to the Middle East, to Europe, to go to libraries, go to museums, talk to professors, gathering the evidence to disprove Christianity. Well, about six months in, he came to the conclusion that, if he was honest with himself, that this was actually true. And it took him a while before he ended up believing because he had a lot of emotional issues to work through as yeah, well of from his past. So he ended up becoming a Christian and then, long story short, was with Crusade and then started speaking on the evidences. And p- people kept saying, man, have you ever written this down? And he thought, I haven't. So he made a little, I don't know, 10 or 12 or 14 page document, both sided, stapled it together, sold them for a dollar. And he told me they sold like gangbusters. And he thought... <laughs> I'm gonna make this into a book. Yeah. But here's the crazy thing. No publisher wanted the book. Wow. They all said this is not how books sell because evidence has huge quotes and it has facts and research. Nobody wanted it. Mm. Finally he got it and it skyrocketed to the best-selling book. Now mm. it's like over four million in print. Mm. It's been in 40 plus languages. World magazine called it one of the top 40 books of the 20th century. I mean, it has skyrocketed to influence, Mm. but he didn't actually write it for skeptics. He wrote it first for Christians to have an answer for their faith. But a ton of people have read it who are skeptics. And every single time I go speak anywhere, somebody either says they're a skeptic led to Christ by reading that book or that book helped them hang on to their faith. Mm, I love it.
0: Well, I mean, for sure, the Lord, the Lord has obviously blessed your dad's ministry and and I think that his book was was written during a time where the conversation very much in the grips of modernity where there's a lot of challenges to like your dad prior to becoming a believer was was uh, hey what what about the reliability of scripture what kind of scientific evidence is there for this or that or and so talk to us about the shift that's happened over the last 50 years or so in our culture, and how the questions have changed?
2: Oh, that's a big question, but that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. I would say there's a few things that have shifted. Number one, when my dad first wrote evidence, he didn't have to include a chapter at all on the nature of truth. Mm -hmm. He just jumped into the evidence because people assumed there's such a thing as truth and you can know it and discover it. Well, in this updated edition that just came out last year, we have Five chapters on what is truth. How do we know truth? Does truth exist? Mm -hmm. Because in 2016, the word of the year was post-truth. We hear about uh, fake news today. In fact, research on Gen Z says they increasingly believe that something can be true for you but not true for me. So that's a massive shift. So when my dad would speak in college campuses, they'd say, give me proof. Give me evidence. Show that's true. Now you get, you claim Christianity is true and people say that's intolerant. That's bigoted. What mm-hmm. right do you have to say that? That's insensitive. Yeah. So there's been a shift number one in authority from something that's external outside of me to the feelings and the self. And there's also been a shift in the nature of truth itself. Another shift that I would say, I'll give you two more. One is just the amount of information that's available, So when my father first published this in the early seventies, what made it so powerful is nobody had access to this information. Yeah, right. You obviously couldn't Google it, (laughs) you know, and in fact, a lot of the information that he has was only in that book because he traveled to places like Europe and Switzerland and Germany and copied down some of that material. Yeah, he went to the sources. Yeah. He went to the sources themselves. So that information was not there. Well, now people are on information overload. And I think what happens is it creates a sense of not greater confidence, but greater skepticism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So again, in this updated one, we had to talk about, okay, should we be skeptical? How do we even know anything at all? So yeah. the amount of information now that we have our fingertips has totally changed. And I think the last big change is we're starting to see with millennials increasingly with generation Z, more anxiety, more loneliness, more depression, and increased attempts of suicide. Now mm. suicide is either the one or two leading cause of death among teenagers. And I think cell phones are a wonderful invention, but I think they're at the root of a brokenness and a relational disconnection that shapes how people process, Things like evidence that just was not as big of an issue in the seventies when he first wrote it.
0: Yeah. So the, the information that is at our fingertips is really overwhelming. I mean, you can't, it's hard to probably even measure it. And yet information without the ability or the paradigm to sift through it and actually make sense of it can, like you said, can be absolutely overwhelming because you look at it and you're just like, okay, if truth is subjective and I just know my own truth, then what what do I do with this information There has to be an enormous amount of of tension in people's minds who are searching for truth because as we know I mean information does not equal knowledge like just because you have information about something doesn't mean that you're able to sort it out in your own mind in a way that uh, is useful and productive to to actually knowing things. So how how have you seen apologetics in general sh- shift around those pretty fundamental developments in the last half century?
2: Well, I think you're right about that. And let me give an illustration that might help our, our listeners really grasp this. Go back to the JFK assassination. There was what, one or two videos, a couple pictures that people had, and there were a number of conspiracies that rose around it. And people kind of thought, if we just had more information, we could have greater confidence in the truth. Mm-hmm. Well, fast forward to <laughs> yeah. fast forward to nine eleven. There's more cameras, yep. tons more pictures, and there's as many, if not more, conspiracies. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. The more so, information, the more conspiracies.
2: That's exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's right. And yeah, I remember yeah. the first time I was I was speaking to a group in Berkeley, the skeptical group. This is a few years now, but it's when the shift hit me. I was sitting there talking, and they were Googling every single thing that I said (laughs) while I was talking. That's funny. (laughs) Yeah. So you think about it. When my dad wrote the last edition of Evidence in 1999, people didn't have the ability, unless they were really motivated to go to a library, to confirm all the sources and things he was saying. Mm. Now anybody can pick up the new evidence and check the vast majority of it through Google Scholar, Google Books, through other blogs. So the shift that needs to take place in apologetics—sometimes it does not. Others is being even more careful than we've ever been to make sure that everything we say, what we document, is accurate. Mm-hmm. Because now people can overturn, and you get one or two things wrong, and people will say it calls your whole claim into question, to jeopardy. They yeah, yeah. do, and I think, and I think that's why this is really one of the values of evidence now is because people really want to know. Mm. Who can I trust? (laughs) Right? There's endless voices. There's endless sources. And my dad building this brand evidence, for lack of a better term, his character staying faithful so long, people say, you know what? I know the information's out there, but here's someone who cares about truth. Mm. So apologists more than ever, and pastors especially, Mm. whatever we preach, whatever we say, we got to do our homework or we're going to lose credibility. That's good, man.
0: I know know one of the, uh, so you wrote- your dissertation on on a claim or a truth claim that I think weren't weren't you challenged by someone and that's the thing that sent you uh down the road of your PhD studies
2: yeah we were actually in Berkeley again on a a different trip with some high school students we go to Berkeley and bring in atheists and agnostics and train our students how to have conversations and defend their faith and uh We had a a speaker who's addressing our students who argues he's a mythicist. He doesn't even think Jesus existed. Yeah. And one of my students said, if Jesus didn't exist, why would all the apostles die as martyrs? He goes, that's crazy. And this atheist friend of mine, he goes, give me some evidence. They actually died as martyrs. Mm -hmm. And I sat there and I thought, I've heard this argument my whole life. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. And second, I was right at the spot needing a PhD dissertation. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I thought, surely somebody's done this. I started to look into it and people had studied individual apostles like mm. Thomas and James, et cetera, but no one had brought it together and assessed the argument holistically. So that's what I did. And frankly, to your point before, one of the things I found is we have not been very careful how we've stated this argument. Yep. We've overstated things. Yep. We've incorrectly stated things. And part of my yep. dissertation is saying this argument still works, but we've got to nuance it and be careful. And if anything, understate it versus overstated.
0: Yeah. There's a there's a mentor of mine uh, here in Dallas, uh, a guy named Dan Wallace, who is yeah. one of the leaders in uh, just kind of the reliability of the transmission of the New Testament. And one of his students, a guy named Peter Gurry who uh, just got his Ph.D., I believe in Cambridge, but don't quote me on that, is about to release a book called Myths and Mistakes. And uh, basically oh. what he's doing is he's taking on this subject of what are common uh, arguments that Christian apologists use that are just either misinformed or misstated or just totally wrong you know one wow. of the com- one of the common ones that surprised me a few years ago when I realized I was using it wrongly as far as manuscript tradition goes is the amount of manuscripts that we have from Homer traditionally like apologists typically say it's around like between six and eight hundred sometimes 900 and that's just kind of like the number that's tossed out there and then you actually go count them. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, because we have the ability to do that through, you know, technology now, and there's actually like between 1700 and 2000, you know, and so again, if we're not like careful with the numbers that we use, then that can be something where in a world where people are going, who can I trust, then, um, you know, you can lose credibility there.
1: And I feel like it just doesn't, I, I use the w- word like common, like I don't consider myself an apologist. And so if you grow up hearing those arguments, they're so easy to just attach to and be like, totally. oh, I can use this in a conversation. Well, it's comforting
0: to someone because oh, yeah. they're like, oh, there's information that like validates what I, this, yeah. this, I want that it to say. Yeah, pastor
1: just said it from the stage. Yeah, and it's it.
0: super easy to just totally repeat it.
1: Yeah, it's a little unnerving sitting here listening to y'all. I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh, what do I use incorrectly? <laughs>
0: <laughs> which is good i mean that's kind of yeah. the point like hey if you're gonna say something then have the honesty and integrity to to be able to back it up
2: so. you know what I, I i'm actually convinced i've never done a study on this but i think there's an awful lot of pastors that don't do their homework mm-hmm. on arguments like this it's yep. true for some apologists and it's true for pastors yep and it undermines. Now some do, I could name some that do, Mm. but I've heard a lot of examples. I heard a a sermon recently on my dissertation and the pastor butchered the fates and the stories of all the apologists. And I Mm. sat there thinking, if he didn't do his homework on this, how can I trust him on anything else? And you know, it's hard to be a pastor because you've got to be an expert in counseling and you have to do finances and you have to do building, you know, Plans to build a bill like you have to know mm-hmm. everything. But what effective pastors do is many will bring people around them and have them do research yep. to just make sure that it's right. And those pastors that go that extra step that makes a huge, huge mm-hmm. difference mm-hmm. in our world of just information overload and building trust.
0: Totally, and I, and I think it's totally the right thing when you're in a conversation some with someone and you don't know the answer to say, "I don't know the answer," <laughs> but. I'd love to explore that with you. I mean, then you have a relational engagement with someone and you're maintaining your integrity by saying you don't know. And frankly, too, the times that I've said that, um, actually, I said it yesterday with someone and I just said, you know what? I don't know that, but let me explore it and, and I'll get back to you and we can talk about it. You know, it's a way that I continue to learn. I think they respected me for telling them the truth. And I think it's going to be a great conversation that we have in the future.
1: Well, as we live in a world that craves authenticity, like just even being able to say like, I don't know is going to be appreciated more than trying to make up some kind of answer. Uh,
0: so Sean, what have you seen in light of the shift over the last 50 years? What have you seen in regard to the questions that were asked 50 years ago versus the ones that are commonly asked now? Like how did, I mean, I know you said you had to include a whole... Section in your update on uh, evidence, which is just came out last year, right?
2: That's uh, right. Yeah. yeah,
0: you guys should definitely check that out. You can get pick it up on Amazon or wherever books are sold. But to uh, check out the completely updated and expanded classic "Evidence That Demands a Verdict," it really is. I I use it as a starting point as a reference tool for something to just be like, okay, these guys are summarizing this. All right, now I can dig in over here, and it's a really useful reference tool. But Sean, what did you guys have to update besides the truth section in evidence now that the culture has changed? What are people asking now?
2: So here's the big thing we had to do. We had to take certain classical chapters like the Lord, liar, lunatic argument and just add a few nuances and update it. Mm -hmm. So one thing was just updating. Some of it was removing issues that are just not relevant now that were two, three, four decades ago. So the Old Testament section in the previous edition was almost entirely what's called the JEPD documentary hypothesis yep. about the books, uh, specifically the first five books of the, the Torah, Bible have different yeah. authors in yep. the Torah. That's not a big issue anymore. We went back to the historical Adam, historical Exodus, historical conquest, yep. and looked at the events and people of the Old Testament and what evidence we have for those. So that Old Testament section was entirely updated. We also updated the manuscripts. You mentioned earlier that people will list like 600 and some for, say, Homer's writing, like the Iliad. Mm -hmm. Well, some of that is just outdated sources. We went through the New Testament chapter and spent incredible amount of time tracking down not only Christian sources for the books of the New Testament, Mm -hmm. but secular sources like Plato and... Thucydides, trying to have the most accurate account possible in that chapter good. to get our facts right. So we had to update some of that kind of information. We also had to respond to a bunch of objections that were leveled against previous editions of evidence. And then there's just some new questions that have come up, which is the heart of your question. So a couple of chapters in particular is, I went through kind of a doubting phase in my life. And it's when I first heard of this idea that Christianity was borrowed from these pagan mystery religions. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I thought I hear this all the time, it's all over the internet. Let's have one just of the most single powerful chapter that just responds to that claim. And we put that together. So I really helped with a friend of mine write that personally. And that's a that that's just an issue that wasn't on the radar a couple decades ago. Yeah. Another one is increasingly people are arguing that Jeets didn't even exist. This mythicist movement has grown in a way that was totally unpopular. I think that's not because there's good scholarship, but because of the internet popularizes it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And
0: all the, so the conspiratists find each other and get together.
2: <laughs> build an <they>, army. <laughs> yeah, they have a platform they didn't have in the past. Yeah, so right. we added a chapter distinctly on uh, – just arguing and showing that Jesus existed. And then one that I added that was fresh is in the old Testament section, we added a chapter called biblically faithful approaches to Genesis. Mm -hmm. And the idea is not to land on old earth or young earth, but just say there's a range of available options that you can hold. Of course, they're not all true, Mm -hmm. but you can hold these at the intersection between science and faith and how to interpret Genesis and be historically and theologically faithful to the scriptures. So that's an Old Testament chapter I'm really pleased with. So if anybody says, gosh, what are different approaches people have to Genesis? What are the strengths and weaknesses? That chapter alone I think you'll find really valuable.
0: That's awesome, man. Well, like we said, you can definitely pick up that book, pick it up from Amazon. It really is, I mean, for anybody that is serious about taking responsibility for what they've been called to do, to first of all, to set apart Christ in your heart. Uh, but then to be able to give a defense for the hope that we have and to do so with gentleness and respect, this updated and expanded book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, I think is a, is an essential addition to your library.
1: We hope you enjoyed part one with Sean. We will be back next week with part two. If you enjoyed it, subscribe, tell your friends, email us any questions that you may have at, at org. Hope you all have a great week. Bye. Peace.